Hello, I'm Professor Douglas Daniels of uh, the Black Studies and History Departments at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Today we're going to have a chat with Dr. John Perkins, uh, a minister and author of several books, Let Justice Roll Down is his autobiography, uh, With Justice for All is another, and the third here is uh, Restoring at Risk Communities, Doing It Together and Doing It Right. Dr. Perkins, tell us about your origins and your family and uh, life in Mississippi. Well, it's great to be with you here. Thank you. Uh, um, I was born in Mississippi, and that's where uh, my family started. Uh, my mother died when I was just seven months old, and my father, who was a sharecropper, and probably couldn't read his name, probably wouldn't know his name if it was written on a piece of paper and um, uh, after she died uh, he dropped us off at his mother's house and she had been the mother of 19 children and so I was raised by a grandmother my grandfather was already dead where was this in Mississippi New Hebron Mississippi where is that that's about uh, 61 miles south of Jackson Mississippi and I and so I spent the first 17 years of my life in, in that community. Uh, I dropped out of school when I was somewhere between the third and the fifth grade. Uh, I never went back to school, uh, but I became uh, motivated uh, at an early age. And I, I, I always say I began to be educated when I was about 12 years old. Uh, I, I worked the whole day for a white gentleman hauling hay and at the end of the day, this gentleman, I expected to make about a dollar, dollar and a half for that day's work because that was the going rate back in those days. But instead of getting a dollar and a half, this gentleman gave me 15 cents. Mm -hmm. And boy, I felt so explored. I didn't know what the word meant, but I mm -hmm. felt so explored, taken advantage of. And that began me to really begin to think. And I think that's the basics of, of, of education, beginning to ask questions, mm -hmm. begin to think. And I was so puzzled how this man could uh, exploit me like that. I could work so hard. You know, I'd been in that one-room schoolhouse, and I'd accepted the, and I'd heard the other students uh, talking about all people are created equal and is endowed by their creator with certain rights. Mm -hmm. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And here I was pursuing happiness with my own label and work, and I got 15 cents. And, and, I, and I really, what I really wanted to do was I really wanted to take that 15 cents and just throw it on the ground and walked out mm -hmm. because my dignity was still intact. This was my first sort of encounter with the bigger world out there. But also I knew at that time if I had threw that 15 cents down, I'd have been considered in my neighborhood where I lived uh, a smart nigger. And mm -hmm. that would have been a terrible thing. My whole family would have been at risk. So I took the 15 cents and I went out. And that's when I began to ask the question, how was this person able to exploit me? And I began to look at what is the ingredients that go into exploitation. And so as I looked around, I could see that this man, he owned the mules, he owned the wagon, he owned the hay, he owned the field, he owned what we call capital. Mm -hmm. He owned the means of production. And all I owned was my labor and my needs and my wants, but I didn't have no control over that. And, uh, and that began my uh, uh, thinking. I said, well, this is, I see how our social economic system works. 
This was during the war. Uh, this was during the war. Mm -hmm. And whoever, and that was easy for me to get a job because there wasn't many men around to, uh, to worry. And I began to say, well, if I'm going to make it in this society, uh, somehow or another, I've got to get the means of production. But the second thing I've got to get at, I've got to get my values out of my own control. Because whoever controls your values controls you. And because I wasn't working to get something that I really needed, I was really working to get something to show to other people that I had worth and value mm -hmm. by what I could show them. So the society was already setting me up for being a, a consumer and working to affirm my own worth. And I didn't have the means of producing that then I was just going to be uh, uh, exploited. And that's one of the big things that uh, basically in the urban community that the education system have failed on. I was speaking at a high school the other day, mm -hmm. and I was saying that we have made education so sophisticated at a basic level that we don't teach kids how to live, mm -hmm. and we don't teach them how to make a living first. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And we don't teach them how to work first. We don't teach them the means of the basics of life in society. And uh, so I, uh, that began my thinking about economics. And I guess you might say that that was in the early days of my life, my greatest drive, my desire to succeed economically. Mm -hmm. Was your family religious, your grandmother? No, my, 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 my grandmother was not religious. We was uh, sharecroppers. And we sharecropped in relationship to the small town. And we was bootleggers. And, uh, and, and, and so we were not this, I'm not the typical uh, Pentecostal or black Baptist. I didn't grow up in that uh, religious environment. In fact, I saw a crisis in religion when I first started going to school. That's where I heard the Lord's Prayer for the first time. And, uh, and I had very questions about that uh, as we were studying the Lord's Prayer, it, uh, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we talk about heaven, we talk about all people being there praising God together. Well, I didn't meet many people down here, a Christian, who was trying to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so that really raised a question in my uh, mind early on. So I had some real questions about uh, Christianity until I later uh, found Christ for my in my own personal life. Mm -hmm. You grew up in a segregated so uh, society then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the era of Jim Crow. Uh, absolutely. And, and I'm still living in a segregated society mm -hmm. uh, in, in the South. It was first segregated by law. Now it's segregated now by economics. And, of course, economics had to do with all of it. In fact, <laughs> that would be the basis of my talk tonight, would mm -hmm. be on, on, uh, on racial justice. And one of the things I'm going to say tonight, that uh, uh, basically justice is an economic issue. It's understanding who owns the earth and how we manage the earth mm -hmm. and how do we distribute the resources of the earth. And, and education ought to be that way by which we are able to more equitable distribute that, those uh, resources. How did you learn that in Mississippi when you were growing up? I mean, were there some specific incidents that were like the 15 cents turning points? That, that was a turning point. I think that was a turning point in my life. And that's when I began to try to get some control of my, first my own life, my own values, and then recognize the fact that I had to 
build some kind of an assets mm-hmm. in terms of uh you know I used to like it's an old slogan, but I still like it. I think it was a, a Merrill Lynch slogan. Uh, your your capital can work for you, mm-hmm. can take care of it. It can take care of you, but it can't take care of itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got you got to learn how to both get it and manage it, and that's where we have, that's where education has absolutely failed in the urban and black community mm-hmm. of, of our nation. It has failed to teach the basic skills of life, and his ba- it a basic fail fail us in terms of how to uh, buy those things that has value that we can get to work with us and for us and our society. That's the, that's the damage. And so that's what makes drugs and crime. And, and, and that's, it's, it's a crisis in our, in our community. And so it's a crisis of education in reality. Mm-hmm. In reality, you know, I used to be, it was hard for me to acknowledge that because I had so little education. You know, and then when you have so little public education, you're always struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it was very difficult for me then to to say it was be. And, and, and I've been fortunate, and uh, but it was hard for me then to see that education was the main failure in our society. But as I get older now and look back, I see that we uh, fail. I mean, I think it's the family. It's the neighborhood and the environment is responsible for we are brothers keeper, and uh, and 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 that we education uh, ought to be the way to to affirm the dignity of people. Why did you leave Mississippi? Well, I left Mississippi uh, after my. I always wanted to leave. I, I guess you say anybody that was my age in Mississippi, uh, they had in their mind to leave. So they always wanted to leave. What was the opportunity that, that brought me out is when my my brother was killed on a racial incident after he had served in World War II. He came home and he was shot and killed by the town marshal in my town, and that was a that was the basis for me. Leaving Mississippi. What were the circumstances of the Marshall? Well, he was at a, it's a, it's a big story. It's in, I think I have it in seven of my book. Uh, he was at a theater, and we was on there in the line to go up in the balcony, and the marshal there was really in this after and during World War Two was a real difficult time in the South because the young blacks was going into the military and coming back and was going to Germany and other places fighting and they came back and it was very difficult for that group of people to readjust back to that old surrogated system. Like Ned Gervin's. Right. And mm-hmm. so when he was in line talking to his girlfriend there and of course they must have been talking loud and the policeman came up behind him and hit him and told him to be quiet and he just sort of turned around and dropped a club from the policeman and he shot him. And of course that was the end of that. It had no other uh, no other meaning. And so after, No trial or anything oh, like no, that. No, no hearing. No, nothing like that. It was never a thought of that. Mm-hmm. But you see, you have to keep in mind there was never a white man ever convinced convicted of a bodily harm to a black person until 1966 and that was when the killing of Vernon Damon and because the Mississippi murder is a state law and that no state jury would ever, grand jury would ever convict a mm-hmm. white person 
of, 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 of killing a black person because it was against the Constitution of Mississippi. Because the Constitution of Mississippi said one person, one vote. And so black folk were not person mm -hmm. in Mississippi. And that's what a lot of folks outside of Mississippi, they think that we were voting and the voters' right and all of that was to elect the list of the evil, whether he was white or black. That wasn't what it was about. It was about black folks becoming human beings. Mm -hmm. And the Mississippi uh, state law did not change until 1970 to confirm with the federal law mm -hmm. that made black folks human beings. So in a great sense of the word, black people didn't become human beings. They become nationally human beings in 1965 with the Voters' Rights Act. Mm -hmm. We became in Mississippi, Mississippi citizen human beings in 1970 when the Mississippi Constitution was changed to agree with the uh, state, I mean, federal law, and that change did not come out of total benevolence. It came out of the whole idea of 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 a uh, uh, Medicaid and Medicare mm -hmm. because it had to be changed. So black folk didn't get citizenship really on the basis of our political environment. It became why that helped. It came out of our whole mm -hmm. economic interest. Uh, we would not have been able to get Medicaid, Medicare, and all of that mm -hmm. in the chain, chain of law. So, so uh, you can see a lot of what we call uh, justice is really rooted in, um, in economic injustice. So you were in Mississippi when Emmett Till was killed? N yes. Uh, uh, no, I would have been here. 55? Yeah, 55. I've been here. I've Where did you come I've to been, California? I, I came to California in 1947. That's when your brother was killed. So 46, he was uh -huh. killed. And I came in 47. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Emmett Till was killed in about 55, 56, long and then. About the same time, that was the beginning, really, of the civil rights movement. And then, of course, about that time, a year or so later, is when then uh, Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, the heat was on. Emmett Till uh, was, a, was a very important uh, part. It, 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 it at least radicalized blacks outside of Mississippi sufficient enough to create the basis for the civil rights movement economically. How did it affect people in California, those African Americans in California? Well, you I, were here then. Yeah, I think we became more committed to the NACP, mm -hmm. more committed to those programs. That was an easy shot for us. It was something that we could, uh, that we could do, and I think that that provided some of the basic money. And then there was, you know, uh, Martin Luther King and those people raised their money in Los Angeles, and they raised their money in Chicago, they raised their money in the major cities uh, mm -hmm. of the North, and that was from the blacks uh, who had endured that indignity in the South. Mm -hmm. So what were you doing in California? You came here after World War II, time yeah. of considerable prosperity. Yeah, and uh, a great time. I, uh, got a job I working at a steel foundry mm -hmm. and then I became a union organizer which would be naturally given my understanding of the need for some control of my labor mm -hmm. and uh, then the Korean War came and I was drafted in the Korean War 
uh, got married, spent my two years there. And Where? In, in, in Okinawa, mm -hmm. I went to uh, Korea. It was a Korean War mm -hmm. because Okinawa was a stadium base for the war in, uh, in Korea. And so I spent my two years there. I came out and uh, got married just when I went in and uh, started my family. And I got a job with a, a, a shopping uh, uh, market company, shopping bag. It's now would be Vaughn. They merged with Vaughn, mm -hmm. and that was basically the uh, the job that I got on. It was a good company, mm -hmm. and that's what I uh, before I uh, found Christ in 1957. I I uh, went to a little holiness mission, and there for the first time in my life, I discovered that I was loved by God. What led you to go there? Uh, my son, my oldest son, who was about uh, four years old, had got involved in some little uh, community Bible clubs. And I began to see something in him in terms of value. Here I, I come from this very poor uh, uh, outlaw family. And here I was, been into service, worked hard, had a good job. And had realized that I could sort of uh, lift myself economically, and that was happening. And then I understood the need for education and a good personality. And I think that that's what I saw that my son was developing in a way that I hadn't developed. And I realized that it was that little Sunday school, it was that little club, and that they were providing more to him than I provided. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, I'm a competitive person, and, and I could see that they had more positive influence over him than I had. And that really challenged me. And so, when I went to there, and then I, well, the first time that I heard uh, that God loved me and that I was loved by God. See, when you grew up without a mother and you grew up without a father, you grew up without the stability of love. It's a big missing point in your life. And so I did not grow up. Uh, I can remember the first time uh, that I saw my father. Uh, that night, I must have been about four years old. Uh, he got me out of the bed when he came and put me in his arm. And he held me and he called me his baby. It was sort of almost embarrassing, but it felt good that I belonged to someone. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the next day he left. But he planted within me the idea that maybe uh, I was loved, but I hadn't, I hadn't had that experience. And then uh, I had my children, and I loved them, but I didn't feel deeply loved. And then when I heard that, that, that God loved me and that I was okay, that God loved me and that he would forgive me for my sin, and that uh, that was a transforming idea in my life. I think knowing that one is love is the most powerful element. And I see mm -hmm. that in raising my eight children. Uh, uh, and I think the children have a greater struggle for the love of their father than anything else. I think that the love, to be loved and drawn by a father is the greatest power. I find that for my girls. Mm -hmm. I find that for my for my boys, and it, and it is really it is that power have to be used very creatively. 
you know, in life because it's such a tender, it's such a tender, uh, they're so tender with it. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they can feel so rejected by, by a father. The saddest look that I've ever seen in a child's face uh, at a little school, uh, uh, I asked that boy, and I was just trying to create some conversation with him. I asked him uh, uh, about his father. What is your father's name? And he said to me, I don't know my father. That was the saddest mm -hmm. look that I ever seen in the person's face. So the power of love and, 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 and what, how, how love, how love affirms one and begins to build within a person a sense of stability and a sense of value and a sense of worth. Uh, so that's what I found. I found that if, if there was a God in heaven and he loved me enough to send his only begotten son uh, to die for me. And if, he could, if I could have a new beginning, could have my sin forgiven and have a new beginning in life, I wanted to do that. Where were you living then? I was living in Pasadena, mm -hmm. California. It was a, and, it, and it gave me um, significant direction. And to a certain degree, I... I Stop doing what I was doing and start to sharing that with others. And three years later, I ended up back in Mississippi. And the rest of it is a little bit of history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's the driving force in my life. I, I think that once I felt this confidence of God's love, now I had to respond back to Him in love. And, uh, and there's a biblical verse that says, as much as you're doing it for the least of these my disciples, you're doing it for me. So I, I felt like that I had to go out and do something meaningful to help society. What did you do? I went back to Mississippi and got involved in, uh, really I got involved in um, uh, neighborhood Bible clubs and Bible clubs in schools. And then, of course, the Civil Rights Movement uh, came in the midst of that. And uh, naturally I got involved in that, but uh, my, my, my goal was to see I was motivated economically. And then my goal was to help those young leaders stay in school, get some skills, go off to college, come back to the community. That's, and that led me to what I've called uh, Christian community development, which I think is the most important element. We have the resources. We are the easiest community to explore. You can go to watch so Compton or any place you go, mm -hmm. and you're going to find that the new immigrants can come in, and they can control the economics of our neighborhood and our community. That's mm -hmm. what that last ride was about mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. But the resources are there, but that we are, have become migrants. We have accepted the upward, outward uh, direction. And we're always talking about how to get out of the ghetto, and that we don't get the skills to manage the resources and to provide the goods and services that will have to be used in this neighborhood, in this community. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and of course this new generation is coming along and they are now exploring our desire for entertainment and our desire for personal happiness. And that's what as far as providing the goods and the services. Even in most of the major neighborhoods I go to around the country, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, even we can't even buy our liquor basically from another black person in the community mm -hmm. uh, because we don't. Because the, the blacks who would be there to do that has moved somewhere else in the mm -hmm. community, so we don't provide 
goods and services in the, uh, in the neighborhood and the skills, even the skills that we learned uh, in slavery and after slavery, uh, uh, we have given those skills up. We was architects, we was brick masons, we were plumbers, we was plasters, we were, uh, and you go on a job today and you won't find many young people with those skills. In Mississippi? In, Missi in California. What about in Mississippi? Same in Mississippi. You will find a few more of that in mm -hmm. Mississippi than you will in California. See, I, I lived in both places. Mm -hmm. And uh, you go on, I go down in pa Pasadena, and they got a great uh, trade school there as a part of PC, uh, part of the, uh, what you call it, the junior college, you used to call it there. Mm -hmm. And they build houses throughout the community. You know, they build these model houses. And, uh, and they suddenly have a great program in Pasadena. You go on those jobs and you didn't see no blacks. Maybe you would see one black mm -hmm. on, those, on, those, uh, on, on those jobs. And then I turn around and I go to prison. And when I go to prison uh, in Mississippi now, that's where I'm going to prison at now. I'm into those prisons. It, it's, uh, in Jackson, it's about 95% black. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a it's a tragedy, and I, and and in California, it's a higher percentage of both blacks and Spanish makes up the highest percentage mm -hmm. uh, from those neighborhoods. Why do you think that is? Well, it 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 it, it comes from uh, the the it comes from historical exploitation. I could say that and leave it there, but it it comes from the lack of building a community. It's the lack of seeing a sense of community response. We can live in community. That, that's one freedom we have. We have the freedom to live in community. And even some people even look back to the old segregated days and sometimes see better goods and services mm -hmm. being provided by us mm -hmm. back in those days. But that was in a community. And so what had happened now, we have made the black community a people. We've given it a color. A community is not a color. Community is a people, mm -hmm. a village, you, you know and, and that village then ought to be able to provide some goods and services. And that's why I go for uh, indigenous leadership development. Indigenous leadership development allows people to develop whatever resources they have and whatever goods and service they can have, then they can market that goods and service to a bigger community. How did you learn about the need for that? By being in Mississippi, being in Mississippi. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, well, well seeing that. Uh, what organizations were you involved with then? <laughs> well, you know, I, I created. I was a part of the creating the, the the Southern Cooperative Development Movement. Uh huh. Uh, it was two of us was the leaders in that. Who uh, was the uh, other? Uh, Father A. J. McKnight, mm -hmm. uh, a Catholic priest, and and myself, and a lot of others. But we were sort of the senior leaders. And uh, Ford Foundation put up the money. When was this? In the, it really began in 67. That, that was really beginning. But we had been involved in trying, I, in Mendenhall, I had been involved in trying to create some economic and education development. Father McKnight had been in Louisiana doing the same thing, and we discovered each other. And we discovered each other when he was able to get a, about a million dollar grant from Ford Foundation to, to make this model that he was working on to make it a, a southern regional model. And then he knew about me doing it. And so we got together and created the Southern Cooperative Development Fund 
and then the Southern Cooperative Development Association. And, and you would put them in, you, the fund provided the loans and the grant, and the association brought people together. And what we was trying to do back in those days, uh, what we had as an asset in Mississippi, and somewhat in Louisiana, but more so in Mississippi, uh, more blacks own land uh, per capita in Mississippi and some section of Louisiana than any other part of the country. Mm -hmm. We own millions of acres of land down there, and, uh, but there were small amounts, plots of land. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to turn that into truck crops and agriculture, and, and, and the cooperative was a way to do that. But what happened then was, as farms was developing, uh, the need for more land uh, became so great. And so those cooperatives, to a certain degree, fail. They fail in terms of economic viability, but they didn't fail in terms of our economic education. Mm -hmm. So really, I see that, uh, you'll find that in my books, that, that the people who, as I go throughout Mississippi, the, the councilmans, the, the, the people who are leading, the young lawyers, uh, the lawyer that equalized education chambers in Mississippi uh, fought a case for 28 years to equalize education in Mississippi. Uh, he was a part of my uh, neighborhood. Chambers, Al Chambers. Mm -hmm. uh, he fought that case for 28 years to equalize college education in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm just on the sand. Was he, he a lawyer? He was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. He was a lawyer. Lawyer, yeah. So I met him when he was in, in, in junior college. He was a part of my Bible study. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what I'm really saying here is that um, what the cooperative movement brought economic reality, and I saw the integrated uh, economics and social uplift and political expansion. I organized all that together within my faith, and we've come to call that today holistic Christian community development, which is really the, uh, the term for a more healthy view of the church, that, that, that we see the whole person. And we not only try to make that person a Christian or a religious person, but we try to make that person a person who is doing practical things out of their faith within the neighborhood, within the community. And I think that's what I made our movement uh, pretty vital in society. Most of the civil rights movement have turned into a, a, a media spectacle by individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 but... I think when you organize it holistically, uh, I think you've got a greater possibility of making it. I, helped, I worked with uh, some of the churches that I worked with was uh, Bishop Blake's church in Los Angeles, which mm -hmm. has a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of churches that are, that are not only trying to uh, build a church congregation, per se, but uh, and trying to do just the spiritual thing, but seeing that man has a body, a soul, and a spirit, and that you minister to the whole person, and all of that is driven by faith, you know. And I, and I, you know, you know, the president talks about faith-based initiative. Well, uh, I worked with him in the original idea mm -hmm. of it with and, George W. Bush. Yeah, mm -hmm. I worked with him with this idea, and of course, he had to call it faith-based instead of calling it Christian-based. Mm -hmm. Because uh, faith-based include the Jews, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Muslims, and other groups, which is the, which is the right thing 
to do. Sometimes people ask me, I, you, you work for Christian Community Development, what about the others? I always come back and say, well, many of the others have been doing it already, mm-hmm. but we Christians haven't been doing it well enough. Mm-hmm. So give me a little chance to work with them <laughs> and to get them to doing it. <laughs> Where did the idea for cooperative develop, economic development come from? I, I, well, I went to Israel. Although it, 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 it has a great root in France, mm-hmm. and it had a great root in, in, in England. Uh, uh, so the cooperative movement is, was great in India, and in, in not in, 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 in England, in France, in Canada. And so the cooperative movement been around uh, uh, a long time. It has four abiding principles that makes it uh, that makes it a uh, a pie for education or two, and it gets you to not just working totally for your individual self, but seeing the need of the broader community have to be. And most people believe in that. Most good economic people believe in developing uh, the, 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 the broader community. You said there were four principles? Yeah, the four principles. First, it have to be uh, democratic, one person, one vote, because how much money you got in it, you only get one vote. Mm-hmm. And so that, that equalizes the vote at the personal uh, uh, level. Continuous education is what the, if there is profit that come from it, some of that profit has got to go to uh, uh, continue education. And I don't remember all the other principles, but mm-hmm. they're all in my book. Mm-hmm. Did the uh, war on poverty of Johnson's Great Society influence your work? Yeah, it, this was, it was taking place about the same time, 1967. It was, yeah, the war on poverty was, it was both, and that's the way all of life is built and sweet. All of life is built and sweet. The war on poverty gave black leadership their first opportunity to provide public leadership across racial barriers. Okay, it, 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 then it focused in on some of the most important issues, and that was uh, the kids had been, uh, who grew up in a a poor family, Uh, that's what uh, Thurgood Marshall won the case in Brown versus the Board of Education on on the idea of the segregation, in fact, developed inferior people if Mm -hmm. you kept them in a segregated uh, society. So those children had been deprived. And so Head Start is the, is, the, um, is the most beautiful of all of the programs that was developed uh, in the Great Society. So the Great Society, as far as Head Start, would be a, would be a success. It never would have continued unless it was uh, successful and meaningful uh, there. Some of the, um, uh, they supported some of the cooperative development. You, you know, so that would it, which ended up, as I've said, become bringing economic education to poor people because poor black folks know nothing about the stock market. Mm-hmm. And that's why today that uh, uh, black people sh- shiver when people talk about uh, getting rid of Social Security and turn it into a private account. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the basic people. In the black community, when they hear the Dow Jones stock averages, they turn their radio off. They don't know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. You, you understand? Only too well. Uh, so, so um, yes, that, that program, 
Johnson will go down in 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 that time in history as a, as a great contributor. He would be looked upon as a as a as a great president as related to poverty and people. I remember when he signed the uh, signed signed the poverty bill. He went back to his uh, home in Texas, down near Brownville. Well, when he had graduated from college, he became a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And he went down there, and he was trying to teach those poor Mexican mm -hmm. people. And that he, while he learned Spanish and all of that, he felt like such a failure as a school teacher. But he said that when he left there, he said, if I ever succeed in life, I want to do something for these Hispanic people. Mm -hmm. And so that's where he signed the War on Poverty Bill at is down down there. Then he's also the one who was the author of affirmative action and coined the word. He 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 created the environment for the word to be coined mm -hmm. affirmative action when he went to Howard University and and made that speech and he used this baseball analogy when he said if a, a team is playing a game and I don't quote me on the numbers, but he said if the team was on the in the ninth inning and discover that another team has been has been cheating and that team that has been cheating is winning nineteen to three uh, and then the referees say okay just so to play fair for the rest of the game he said you know who's going to continue to mm -hmm. dominate the society and he said so we got to do something for equality and that was the beginning of affirmative action which is now of course is a bad word mm -hmm. we have demonized our uh, that were so Johnson played a major role. You know, of course, we all know his downfall was that Vietnam War is what took him down. The deaths of the Shor civil rights workers, Shorney, Shorner, Cheney, Goodman, and of uh, Medgar Evers, they occurred while you were in Mississippi. Oh, yeah, they, they occurred. Medgar Evers was first, mm -hmm. and then uh, Cheney and Goodman and Swanner was, that was a spark. That was the... Um, that was the enlightenment of outside people to what was going on. Outside? I mean, outside of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, Mississippi was, uh, you know... Um, uh, the black the people Cops. in Mississippi knew. Yeah. Uh, wrote a book that's called Mississippi the Closed Society. Mm -hmm. and it was Silverman, talk, I think. Silverman. Yeah. And it was talking about what kind of... Uh, those three Sirice death was a breaking the cracks that broke the, that began to allow it to come out. They came into Mississippi. Jagger Hoover came to Mississippi, opened the first FBI office in Mississippi. They started looking for the civil rights workers. And, and they were getting outside of the target area, and they found 11 black bodies in rivers. Mm -hmm. And, that, uh, and, and, uh, and that, that wasn't what they were looking for. They stopped that. Murdered. Yeah, murdered, tied with chains. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for those two Jewish boys uh, that had white boys mm -hmm. that had been that had been killed in the society that began to let people know, and so Mississippi Burning is a reflection of that movie. that's called Mississippi Burning. Mm -hmm. That was a that was a a, a crucial time, and, and that, and of course, the crossing of the bridge in uh, in, in Selma. Mm -hmm. I remember that I worked for my. Was it the Pettus? Pettus Bridge. Mm -hmm. I remember that I, I, uh, I was in, in Mississippi, you might say as a missionary, working. I came back, the company that I worked for, I knew the president, multi-million dollar company. Uh, 
What company? Shopping bag at that mm-hmm. time. Okay. It's now Vaughn. Yeah, okay. And I remember that, and, and he would give money to help me back in Mississippi, This the owner of that company. And I remember that I went, come back to see him, like, right after those three, what, no, after the crossing the, the bridge, and, uh, and went into his office, and he pulled out, it was Time of Life magazine, with the pictures of dogs on the front page, and he throwed it down on the, on the table, and he said, this has got to stop. Now, he was, he was a white millionaire in California, was outraged by that. I see, so, I, so I think that lifted, the, that brought uh, the moral values on our side of the civil rights movement. And that was the beginning of the win of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Good people, white and black, mm-hmm. at this point, began to see that it was a scar upon our nation to continue with that. And of course, Johnson is a guy who then uh, was a southerner. He's the one who convinced those southerly, that's a story within itself, how he convinced Russell and all those other people to go with him with the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I, I, he said it, you either go with me, don't go against me. You know, mm-hmm. and that was the be, uh, beginning. So that was the, that was the moral power that uh, that launched the civil rights movement. Tell us about your work in uh, California. Uh, you said you were in a union at one time. Yeah, well, when I, that's when I was working for my company. But and that was a, a working. Well, I was in a union when I first came out here working mm-hmm. in the Steelworker Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then when I went back to my own company, and when I went to the, the shopping bag company, the one I was just telling you about, uh, they was a company much like, eventually like the Ford Motor Company. You know, the union had, they broke Ford Motor Company and made it a good company. You understand? They resisted the union original. Ford, Ford did. did. Mm-hmm. But then, finally, Ford became the most benevolent company mm-hmm. to the Union of America. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my company, and this man who owned my company was from Kentucky, and he had been a union worker, and he, his company was more of a profit-sharing company. So while me being in the union there didn't have much meaning, it had meaning, mm-hmm. but, it, but it didn't have much meaning because we had a, uh, that was a good company. It was like the model, a model for what you uh, did later in right, Mississippi. Right, 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 right. And, 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 and this gentleman, uh, he supported my ministry up until he died. Mm-hmm. You spoke of in a high school recently, you said. Tell me about that. Well, I, I'm, ex- I'm invited uh, often to go to, out to high school and speak, especially during January and February. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so I just spoke at a... Uh, uh, um, uh, high school, and I guess that the the greatest thing there is trying to uh, rally the young blacks to take advantage of the education opportunities available. What school was that? This was out in Raymond, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That's right outside of Jackson. Mm-hmm. But one of the sad things that one of our schools in Jackson, Lanier School, from which uh, many of our leading blacks have come from, it was a second high school in Jackson, in Mississippi. Uh, uh, that they couldn't even get a, a person from that school to be what they call Mr. the King, you know, Mr. the head of the, the class. 
because they didn't have any black students that had enough uh, their 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 what you call it GP whatever, GPA GPA mm-hmm. was not strong enough mm-hmm. because uh, at that school they see education as being white mm-hmm. and uh, and and so they are hip hop people in that society and boy that's a that's a and that culture is strong. Very strong. It's very strong. We're in a, uh, and, and, and no longer can we just, we should do everything we can to change society. No doubt about that. But boy, that we at some point, that's why I'm committed to neighborhood and community development. We got to do something somewhere in the neighborhood in which we live and hope and pray and work that that can be a model to inspire people in other neighborhoods and communities. We just fighting only for what we call civil liberties without living out some models of doing that Mm -hmm. and inspiring our young folks uh, is a a, a dead-end street for us. How did the students receive your message? They, you know, they sit after a little quiet. It's it's almost like when I I tie that to uh, Mega Everett, I tie that to Martin Luther King, I tie that to Malcolm X, and I and I tie it to the fact that they died to make the opportunity we have. Most of the young folks in Mississippi, uh, they got uh, uh, men of the public station, uh, 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 they got commercials, they run on me and stuff like that. So I'm pretty known in the state, mm-hmm. and uh, and we have a center that is well run and so the young folks think that I'm sort of a successful person and so when uh, when they when they hear a person talking about uh, them and using their resources see I run a little foundation and and that little foundation is involved what's the title of the foundation? it's the John Perkins Foundation Mm -hmm. and we use all the money that we most of the money we raise but money for my speaking, like from being here, that will go into a foundation uh, trust, and that money then will be used to do the work that I'm doing. And most people know that. I was mm-hmm. in jail the other day dedicating some computers. This is a little bit of money. This ain't a lot of what money. What jail? Uh, this was in Jackson. This mm-hmm. was not right outside of Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what I'm saying is the kids respond because they know about our park. They know me. They know my son. They knew my son, who was a who was a basketball player, and the, and our son is named after him. Mm-hmm. So the young folks will respond if they see someone who is they consider to be uh, dedicated. I, you know, I have to convince them when they come around there, some of them that we are not, we don't sell dope because they they can't imagine anybody having nice homes, nice all of that. Without, because we have uh, our place is somewhat like a a mission center, and see there's pe- people in Jackson. In Jackson, mm-hmm. and so people are there working all the time uh, on the project, and the young folk in its and the young folk come there, and naturally you would associate that with being rich, do, do, do you know, in the mm-hmm. community. And when they see somebody is uh, doing, it, we have a memorial to my son in the in in there, a little chapel. It's an open chapel with the top on it and I go out there and sit with the kids in it and, and tell them the story of the center and I told them the story and little kids I mean young boys 16 and 17 year old would be sitting there weeping 
when they when they recognize the fact that they tell my my son was all state basketball player and then what he tried to do mm-hmm. then he died of a heart attack just what his frantic heart attack died and how the Fuhrman and I decided then we would make this center dedicated to them in the neighborhood so kids pretty well respond if they we have really got to model it out. We really got to show this generation mm-hmm. because they're looking at the they're looking at the uh, the Kobe Bryant. They're looking at the Michael Jacksons. They're looking at the uh, uh, successful rappers, you, you know, in, in society. So it's a hard it's a hard deal to. That's why it's so important living in that neighborhood, being there with those kids in the community, is so crucial. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your work in Los Angeles. You said you. Uh we're working with Reverend Blake. Well, I start, you know, I run this, we run something we call the Christian Community Development Association. And that we then, when communities who are using their faith as the basis of neighborhood and development, parish development, they join our association. Well, when I was living in Los Angeles, Reverend Blake came over and asked me to help him to uh, do some development in that neighborhood. What neighborhood is that? And that's in West Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and and that is a it's almost a renaissance taking place there now, in that community, and and it's taking place around that church. And there's also a a, a Methodist church there that is doing a lot of stuff in that mm-hmm. neighborhood. Uh, that's usually what happens when a leading pastor really wants to do something significant, not just for himself. Uh, then other churches will will begin, those who are concerned, will begin to pick up that method. And so you do have, I would say, the strongest development that is happening in the urban community of America today is somehow connected mm-hmm. to strong and powerful churches yes. within within the community. And so, but those that's something folk, that's overlooked often. Yeah, th- those folks join our association, and and and, uh, and that's what we provide the training. Uh, for that, and of course, in Pasadena, I started there the Harami Christian Family Center and a Harami Preparatory School. Uh, we decided there in that neighborhood that what we had to start at the first grade, preparing the kids for for college, and so we started the preparatory school there. And we wanted to make it small, and uh, the idea was to have no more than eighty students in it. And uh, from that school now other schools around the nation in every in many of the urban communities and black communities most of the christian schools have a waiting list we have a christian school in rural mississippi we started in rural mississippi a ports that has a waiting list how did you choose the name harambi what does that mean we got that word from we went to africa in 1980 where uh, in, in kenya uh-huh. in kenya that the word means this it's a rallying cry mm-hmm. let us all pull together yeah let us all pull let's let's get together and push mm-hmm. you know let's all pull together and push and the idea is that if one person is in a problem what he do is say harambe and then everybody will come and help him get out of that problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and when they have a problem, they say, Harambe. Mm-hmm. And so they, they have what they call Harambe days. When they get ready to build a hospital or get ready to do something, they'll have a Harambe day. And people will come from all over. And they will ha- have a Harambe. They'll be selling stuff, oxygen and stuff. All the stuff they sell 
is what somebody would bring. Somebody would bring the best looking cow they got, mm -hmm. best looking sugar cane, or the best looking sheep and chicken. And then they bid on it. Instead of paying, let's say, uh, $100 for that cow, you know, just do that and say, you would probably pay $500 for that cow. Mm -hmm. Because you get into that sort of a bidding deal because you're doing it for something good. And, and so that's, a, that's sort of the way they have made. Uh, that was Kenyatta's. Uh, when Jomo Kenyatta, John first that was his president. Uh, mm -hmm. Three. Uh, I mean, see, he said that now that we have got our freedom from England, we don't have nothing but ourselves and our land. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got to do it ourselves. And so they started the Surrounding Movement. And so we picked it up over there and came back to Mississippi. And, and by this time, I was coming. It was in 1980, and then two years later, I moved to Pasadena into one of the highest daytime crime areas. And so we started there, and we said, let's call this a Harambe. And I started having meetings with the people in the community. And, and out of that came the Harambe Center. Mm -hmm. and, and you can say the people in Pasadena got together, and we pushed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You uh, have received several honorary degrees, I understand. Tell us about that. Well, uh, that's, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that. You know, especially being a third-grade dropout. And then having uh, seven honorary degrees uh, from sort of elite colleges around the country. The first college that gave me an honorary doctorate degree was Wheaton College. Mm -hmm. Wheaton College had originally been an emancipation college. You know what they call it? Uh, well, it was a college. What did they call it? Uh, uh, a college that was fighting for the rights of blacks before the, you know, before the emancipation. Where was that? It's in Chicago, outside Chicago. Mm -hmm. And Wheaton, so, Illinois. Wheaton, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, Geneva College. It's another one of the uh, early colleges. Uh, uh, and so I have seven uh, honorary degrees. And I, and Any I, from California institutions? Uh, no, I'm, I don't have an honorary degree from, uh, from California. I, uh, no, I don't. Most of them is from the, is from the East. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the East is probably more acutely aware and has a, a, a population that is affected uh, by the need for uh, reconciliation, uh, probably more than California. Now, if you ask me who are the best people mm -hmm. in America, uh, I would say what I have found, I have found them in Minnesota, uh, Oregon, Washington, and California. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I would also say Iowa, uh, though if the you Midwest, me, huh? the Midwest, yeah, and the would, West you, Coast, right? You would, you, you would. Uh, so, so uh, California people don't have a, a lot of time. I'm talking about white folks and other people to talk to think about racism. They don't think about it. Much. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, uh, 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 in society, and, and they don't play it as a game. They don't necessarily play as a game. Uh, in the South, it's a, it's a part of the game, and, 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 and the people can feel it more severely mm -hmm. in the East than they can out here in uh, California. And California has so much resources. You, you know, and California is just a wonderful... Seventh richest nation, I believe. Right, right. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful... I can say nothing. You know, in Pasadena, they... Uh, uh, I wasn't born in Pasadena, but I lived there for mm -hmm. 14 years. And, uh, and they uh, selected me as one of the most important blacks that ever 
uh, lived in Pasadena, and that's in. The, and they selected ten people, mm-hmm. and Jackie Robinson and and others, Mac from, Robinson, yeah, and all of those people from that town. And I was uh, selected as one of those. When was this? Uh, this was mm, mm, fifteen years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a that was a real honor. They they had a uh, they had a, a display in the in the museum. You know, Pasadena got some outstanding museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Pasadena is a wonderful town. And so I love California. It's been good to me. So you're going to be speaking tonight? I'm going to be speaking tonight, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a real privilege. I'm going to be speaking on uh, uh, racial justice mm-hmm. and whether or not we have arrived yet. And uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, answering that question. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Perkins. I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk with you and get to know you better, learn what you've been doing. Thank you.